Good morning, United Evangelical Church family. Glad you are here with us. This is, I believe, day four of quarantine, live stream service, and uh, I hope we're not getting too used to it. This is just something that we're um, uh, taking advantage of while we are away from each other. And you might be wondering who is behind all of this, because I can tell you this, it's not me. I'm not behind setting all of this up. I'm not the one that's um, organizing the live stream and the connection. So the the benefit of us being connected this way is due to the responsibility of Mr. Bisher Rihani. And so he is behind the camera. And uh, even yesterday, if you were here on Friday night, we had a, a slight interruption near the end of the message. But quickly that was changed. We, uh, not we, but him, took advantage of the opportunity to, uh, to fix everything. So we are praying that this new internet connection, new router will be able to uh, bless us with a greater connection. And so make sure that you look him up on Facebook, send him a message of thank you. And uh, I know he doesn't want me to put him on the spot right now, but I'm doing that. Without any other um, message, let's jump right into the Word of God. Take your Bibles with me. Meet me in the New Testament, specifically the book of Revelation. Now, if you were here on Friday uh, night, you realize that we spoke about the Apostle Paul and his imprisonment and how his composure and his attitude was something to, uh, to follow because he had this perspective, even in light of his uh, incarceration, that was nothing short of supernatural. And that time in his house uh, arrest was so fruitful that we are benefiting from it even today. And there's another person that came to mind, just meditating upon the scriptures that you are well familiar of. Uh, he is historically known as the last apostle to have lived amongst the original 12. And if you guessed John the Beloved, then you are right. It's John the Beloved, the one who walked with Jesus, the one to believe the youngest amongst the disciples, who wrote the book of Revelation. And he found himself in a specific condition. The context in which he wrote this letter is something that I think we can benefit from as well. And so before we read the verses that will uh, give the framework for this message, just join with me in prayer as we seek the Lord and His Holy Spirit to help us understand His Word. Lord, this morning we look to You in thanksgiving and we worship You, Lord, because You are alive. And Lord, we just ask right now in this moment that You would give us the strength and the energy to receive from You. We pray, Lord, for a clarity of speech. We pray, Lord, freedom from any confusion. We pray, Lord, that you would expel all distraction. And Lord, even through this live stream, we pray for an invasion of your presence into every room, into every bedroom, into every living room, so that we may fellowship with you in light of this. Lord, we declare our weakness and our need for you. We ask that your hand would remain strong upon the live stream, that there would be no interruptions or anything of the sort that would rob the word from being implanted in our hearts. So we look to you, risen Lord Jesus, and we ask that you would guide us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're in the book of Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 9. Let's see what it says here. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus 
was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so we know where John is at this point. Now, some believe that John was around 90 or in his 90s when he wrote this. And he tells us very clearly that he was on an island called Patmos. Now, let's just be clear. Let's not get confused with the idea that an island was some vacation spot. Far from it. Patmos was a rocky terrain. It was isolated. It was, in fact, a place where the Romans would drop off prisoners to perform hard labor and to distance themselves from society. It was not the ideal place for social gatherings. And so when he says he was on Patmos, there's an understanding here that he was, in fact, regarded as a transgressor in Rome. He was seen as a criminal. He was seen as somebody that was, that was a threat to society. And this is where he is. And he tells us why he's there. He says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's making it clear that he's not suffering for wrongdoing. He's making it clear that he's not here because he broke the law. He's here because he was faithful to God. He's here because he was an influence for the kingdom of God. And to Satan, that was a threat. And so the enemy saw it fit to take John and to put him on some island hoping that he would have no influence for advancing the kingdom of God, which I love. You know why? Because the enemy thought that he could take John and put him away and silence him. And it is on this very island that we get one of the greatest revelations in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ and his final agenda in the world. You can never silence the word of God. You can never uh, push the church in a corner where she will never, ever, ever be able to be an influence for God. And so we are always victorious if we are connected to Christ. And the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. We see that here in John's life. We see it throughout history. We're going to see it today. God always has a purpose in mind. And the enemy, though he may seem like he's gaining ground, is fooling himself and we should never be fooled by it. The Lord always knows how to come with a surprise, maybe even surprising us to see how he can bring about fruit in times that we think are not possible. John is on an island called Patmos. John is there on account of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I know that this has been repeated over and over again, but let me repeat it for our benefit. John was in isolation because of the message of Jesus Christ. You and I are in solitude not because of the message of Jesus Christ. We're here because of a sickness. We're here because the government wants to protect us. But let me say this. If we are struggling with our faith in this circumstance, if we can't find ourselves to be devoted to the Lord in this circumstance, what will happen to us when the time does come where we are forced to be silent or we are forced not to gather together because of what we believe. I say this because I'm afraid that in the West, churches are not preparing their people to learn how to suffer. So when suffering comes, everybody is shocked. And because many people have a skewed theology of how we are to live in this world as Christians, they are almost disappointed in God, they almost have doubt in God, and they wonder if God is even for them. Let me say this very clearly. Jesus promised suffering. 
That might be shocking to us, but it is important to understand. He promised it. But here's the greater promise. Not that we would just suffer, but that his presence would be known in suffering. You know, it's amazing what Paul prayed and desired in Philippians. He goes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we go, amen. I want to know the power of his resurrection too. I want to know what the resurrection power of Jesus is like in my life. But he didn't stop there. He goes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We stop by the power of resurrection. Paul says, no, I even want to know what his fellowship is like in the midst of suffering. We are going to suffer. And you might think, okay, you're taking it too far. We will never come to the point in America where we will be persecuted with such an extreme standard. Oh, really? Just take a moment and pause and think, would you ever have thought before two months from now that we would be in the state that we are in because of a virus? Would you ever have thought that what we are experiencing right now, I never thought in my short time in ministry or even before that, meditating and praying about being in ministry, that I would be here in a basement staring at a camera and talking to people via live stream two weeks in a row. Did you ever think that you were going to be stuck in your home like this? See, it's arrogant for us to think this way, to think that this and this can't happen and this and this can't happen, when in fact it can happen. And take this quarantine time, brothers and sisters, as an opportunity to get ready for what could come. Whether suffering will come or not, we must be ready. This is all a rehearsal. I like to take it that way. This is all just a rehearsal for what could possibly come. You and I better learn how to read our Bibles. You and I better learn how to pray without our pastor leading us in prayer. You and I better learn how to sing and worship God without a beautiful, talented team with a nice system guiding us and stirring our emotions. John was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Don't be shocked if one day you and I will find ourselves just as quickly as things turned around in America because of a virus, how things can turn around because of persecution that will flood our generation. I know that's not the popular message today, but it is the necessary message. Now we would see in verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit. Now that's important to understand. When he says, I was in the spirit, he's not speaking about the standard that you and I are called to walk in as Christians, to walk in the spirit, to live by the spirit and not in the flesh. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a unique occurrence that happened specifically to the writers of the scriptures. When he says he was in the spirit, it means that he was translated to be a vessel of divine communication for God, that he was taken up into another realm so that God could speak to him or reveal a vision to him, or or speak in a manner that was tangible, so that what? He could record divine truth, as we see in our scriptures. So when John says he was in the spirit, it was something unique to the writers, like the prophets of old, who often said that they were in the spirit, so that they could receive and then record truth. That is what we have in our pages here. But what I love is that he was in the spirit, and he says, on the Lord's day, on the Lord's Day. Now, we understand that this is not the first time this term, the Lord's Day, is given to us in the Bible. The Lord's Day speaks of the first day of the week. Sunday for us, but the first day of the week. Believers, during this time, define the first day of the week as the Lord's Day because it, it commemorated the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. So they recognize that as the Lord's day where he, he conquered death and he rose from the grave. And I love how John is identifying and recognizing the Lord's day in the context that he's in. In other words, John is separated from the church. John is separated from other believers. But John, though he is isolated on an island, is still recognizing the Lord's day. I mean, much was taken from John. Much was stripped away from him, including comfort, including fellowship. But you know what you couldn't take from John? His ability to recognize the Lord's day. His ability to lift his heart in adoration and to meditate and to minister unto him. He would not give that up, though he was in prison, and it could not be taken from him. What an example of a man who suffered much more intensely than you and I are suffering, and yet still he was a worshiper, and yet still he was faithful, and yet still he did not miss a beat to his devotion to the Lord. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and here's what John is about to experience. You ready? John is about to get a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. John is about to see something of Christ like he has never seen him before. And we have to make this very clear that although, unlike John, who received scripture defining revelation, who received authoritative content and truth, we can't get there. No man will ever receive what the writers of the New Testament received, extra revelation, extra content for the scriptures. That will never happen because our Bibles, it's sealed. It's done. The word of God concerning who he is and what we need to know is final. But that doesn't mean that the principle isn't there for us. We are still invited to know something deeper of the person of Jesus Christ. Remember that verse from Friday in Ephesians 1.17 that Paul prayed that the spirit of wisdom and revelation may be given to us in the knowledge of him that we may receive a greater understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Not that there is more to know in, in terms of the scriptures or beyond the scriptures but that we need the eyes to see him for who he is. And the reason why we bring this up this morning is because with childlike faith I look at John and I look at the circumstance he's in on an island by himself, perhaps. And yet he received a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at your situation and I want you to see where you're at, far from a rocky island. You're in the comfort of your home. You're perhaps even with family members, but still nonetheless, separated from normal life. To take it upon yourself to say, Lord, what you gave to John, would you allow me to have? Lord, if there's anything that will be exposed to me during this time, would you open my eyes to see Jesus Christ? Lord, don't let me waste this opportunity to miss out on receiving a greater understanding of the lover of my soul. Looking to Jesus. This is what John is about to experience. This is what you and I should be stirred to seek. You know, our hearts might be in different places this morning. Might be discouraged, might be disheartened, might be sad. You know, I can't help but think about the disciples after Jesus' death in Luke 24 when they were walking towards Emmaus. And you know that scripture very well, right? Those two disciples were sad in heart, it says, and they were discussing these matters concerning Jesus' death. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. 
And when Jesus shows up on the scene, it says that he disclosed himself so that they would not be able to recognize him. And as they were walking, he was asking and they were telling him, where were you? Did you not hear what happened about this Jesus that we were hoping would be the Messiah? And in fact, he, he died. And maybe he's not who he said he was. And then Jesus rebukes them. And then Jesus opens the scriptures to them and begins to testify of something particular. And then when he reveals himself to those two disciples, they look at one another and they say, Oh, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? And you think, well, what made their hearts burn? Yes, it's the scriptures. But not just that. You look at what Jesus taught them and it says that he went to Moses and the Psalms and and, and the portions of the Old Testament to show the things concerning himself concerning himself it was him as the person that was being revealed throughout the pages of the old testament and as he was walking on that seven seven mile journey their hearts began to be stirred and burned because of the revelation of jesus christ i'll tell you what will keep your heart burning during this time i'll tell you what will burn out all sadness and depression and cloudiness in your soul asking Jesus Christ to open up the scriptures to you so that your heart can burn with a greater intensity in such a way that it outshines all other places in your heart. How comforting is it for Jesus to appear to John in this state of his life? I challenge you to look at the pattern of the New Testament, how Jesus often does something special in the midst of the suffering of his saints. And that's certainly true for John's life. So then John begins to now speak in detail about what he sees and the first thing that is before him. Let's read in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And it's very likely that he was worshiping on the Lord's day, that he was meditating on the Lord's day, that he was fellowshipping on the Lord's day. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes and takes his heart and takes his own spirit and brings him to a unique place to see a vision. And then John first says, I turn because he heard a voice. He turns and the first thing that he sees are these seven golden lampstands. And we think, what is that? Well, all you have to do is scroll down and look at verse 20 to see what those seven lampstands were. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll get to that in a moment. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these lampstands symbolize churches. What a description of what the church should be. A lampstand displaying light, giving direction, clarity, illumination. Now the church is the lampstand. The church isn't the light. The church carries the light. The light is Christ. The oil for that lamp to burn is the Holy Spirit. But the church is the display case of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is who we are called to be. And these seven lampstands more importantly, have somebody standing in the middle of them. And John tells us it was one like a son of man. He had a human appearance, like Daniel saw. 
but he was standing in the midst, and we know very well that this is Jesus Christ. He was standing in the midst of the golden lampstands. He wasn't on the side. He wasn't outside. He was in the middle. Maybe visually, it looked like seven golden lampstands in a circle, and there's Christ in the center. Regardless, the, the message is still there that Jesus Christ must be seen in the midst of the lampstands. That as the church of Jesus Christ, what people need to behold when they see the church is in fact Christ in the midst of the church. That should be a wonderful challenge to us as a church. That when God allows us to come together again, that if anybody were to come and to visit our church or be a part of our church, they would very well sense the presence of Jesus Christ. They would realize that our church is centered around Jesus Christ. We're not centered around a pastor. We're not centered around fellowship. We're not centered around relationships. We're not centered around good music. We're not centered around anything else other than Christ. And if Christ is not seen, or if people don't at least get the idea that Christ is what we are all about as a church, then we have to reevaluate where we place Christ in the church. John sees Jesus in the midst of the church. That is his rightful place. That is where he needs to be. And this is where things get interesting for John. He sees Jesus Christ in the midst of the church. He sees the seven golden lampstands. But then he gets a closer look and he begins to see a descriptive reality of this Jesus from head to toe. What's the first thing that John sees? Let's see clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So the first thing that John sees as he's in the spirit, he sees Jesus with this robe from his shoulders down to his feet and this golden sash around his chest. And John being a Jew and you and I calling to be familiar with our Old Testament should think to ourselves, this is a familiar picture if this is going to point to anything in the Old Testament, it surely points to the garments of the priest during the Old Covenant. The adornment that the priest would have says something about this picture here. That Jesus Christ is in fact the great high priest, our high priest, the high priest of the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. Now, you know what's interesting? One of the roles of the priest in the Old Testament when he was in that structure called the tabernacle is that he would take care of the lampstand that was in that place. Now pay attention to this. He would make sure that that lamp was always burning in the tabernacle. And Jesus is seen here as our high priest and not just for one lamp which symbolized the light of Israel in the Old Testament, but the seven churches, which speaks about the local churches that make up the body of Christ. Listen to how beautiful this is. Jesus Christ is clothed as a priest standing in the midst of the lampstands. Meaning what? That like the priest in the Old Testament that managed the lamp, Jesus Christ is the faithful one who will take care of the light of the church. He will watch over his church. He will purify his church. He will supply oil to the church. He will manifest his presence in the church. He will guard his church. He will do all the things that he needs to do to make sure that that lamp is burning brightly. Therefore, we need him. We can't do church apart from him. We need to rely on him. He is the very one that strengthens and that does all things pertaining to the life of who we are. 
He's right there. And this is what we see here, that he is operating as a priest. And we know that the priest also, listen to this, was a man that represented men before God, and was also one who represented God before men. And for Jesus Christ to be clothed like a priest says something of his ministry, that you and I can know God the Father because of the priestly work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, though he is priest, he's also the sacrifice. He is the one that laid down his life so that you and I could be rightly related to God. That apart from the priest and the ministry of the high priest in Jesus Christ, we cannot know God. We cannot have relationship with God. We cannot have intimacy with God. And yet Christ is the connecting factor between the church and God. Oh, how we need him and how we should praise him in light of that. This is what John sees first. But then he sees something else. In verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. So after scaling his eyes up and down to see Jesus with this long robe, this golden sash, a glorious high priest that will manage the church, that connects the church to the Father, he looks at his head and he begins to see white hair flowing. And John quickly realizes this is not the same Jesus that I saw in his earthly ministry. He sees his hair and it says something about his purity. It says something about his sinlessness. It says something about the brilliance of his glory. And John is taken back for a moment and he realizes this, that though he is like a son of man, though he had this human appearance, this was not some exalted creature. This was not even some angelic being. No, his hair was white like wool. You might be wondering, okay, what does that mean? Think of the language, one like a son of man, hair what like wool. Now, you need to go here to understand this. Go to Daniel chapter 7. And look at the vision that Daniel gets in verse 9. In Daniel 7, 9, Daniel says, As I looked, so Daniel had his own vision in the spirit. Daniel had his own experience, very similar to John's. If you actually want to study the book of Revelation, make sure that you study it with the book of Daniel. If you want to study the book of Daniel, make sure that you study it with the book of Revelation. They complement each other so well. And in fact, as you're turning there, think about this. Daniel and John have something more in common than you and I think. If you look at Daniel's life and John's life, you will know that they are both identified by God as what? Beloved. Daniel is known as beloved. John is known as the beloved. And what's interesting is these two men who are so cherished and loved and favored by God were the two men that had a revelation of the end times. Daniel 7, 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed. How many thrones? One throne? No, multiple thrones. Thrones were placed. And the ancient of days, that's speaking about God, that's speaking about his eternality. That's speaking about the fact that, not that he had a beginning, but that he was there for all time. The ancient of days took his seat on one of those thrones. Now look at the description that he gets. Daniel, hundreds of years before John, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. So Daniel sees God the Father 
taking his place on the throne and he noticed that his hair was white like wool. And John sees Jesus sharing the same qualities as the Father. How do you know that this is the Father in the Ancient of Days? Because you got to go down to verse 13 and see that Daniel sees the Son of Man. So it's not speaking about the Son of Man in verse 9. You go to verse 13 of Daniel 7, you see that the Son of Man comes down. So this is speaking about the first person of the Godhead. And you come to Revelation, you see that Jesus shares the same qualities as the Father? Yes, because though they are distinct persons, they are one. And Jesus Christ shares the divine attributes of God the Father. So what what John is seeing is that Christ, though he knew this before, he's realizing it because it's being displayed that he is in fact God. He is in fact deity. He is in fact above all creatures. He is not a created being. He is the source of all things being created. And as the Father is, so is the Son. And that's even being displayed in the physical sense at this point. He's seeing how they are sharing the same attributes, not just in nature, but even in the physical description. What a wonderful truth. In fact, you see this and you realize it doesn't even end there. Look quickly, though we're stepping ahead. Look at verse 18 here, rather 17. Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now that's comforting to us to understand who Jesus is, but it's even more amazing to realize that Jesus dared to use these words. Because in the Old Testament, if you ever want to prove to somebody that Jesus is in fact God, you go to Isaiah 44 and look what it says concerning God. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Now look what God, Yahweh, says about himself. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus is borrowing the same title that God used for himself and says, I am in fact the first and the last. So either we have a contradiction in our Bibles or Jesus is saying something about his nature that demolishes every false notion that he is a prophet merely, a messenger merely, God's best creation merely. No, he is God himself. His hair is white like wool. He is the first and the last. And we can draw out so many other points in this to prove that Jesus is in fact God, but that's not the purpose of our study this morning. He sees something of his, his nature, his eternality, his purity, his holiness, but more importantly, the fact that he is sharing the same nature as the Father. And then it says here in verse 14 in the second part, his eyes, oh, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks about the penetrating power of his gaze. This says something about how nothing is hidden from his sight. More importantly, Jesus' eyes, please understand this, Christian. He sees past everything. And the fact that he's standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands means that there is nothing that is hidden from him in his church. Not just the church, but the world. But pertaining to his church, nothing can be hidden. The way the finances are dealt with in the church can't be hidden from him. The way people relate to each other in purity and in holiness or lack thereof is not hidden from him. 
the schemes that are done, the hypocrisy, all these different matters that we think that we can hide are in plain sight in the eyes of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the very description that he gives to one of the churches. Look at Revelation 2 and look at verse 18. And the angel of the church of Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, why would he say that? He says that because as you scroll down in verse 19, look what he says. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. He goes, I know it. I see what you're doing. Every action, every plan, every move of faithfulness. But then he says, but I have this against you. See, those eyes see everything. Nothing can be hidden from them. And here's my fear in our generation, that people don't see Jesus with those kind of eyes. They don't see Jesus that way. And they don't think Jesus sees them that way. See, this should cause something in our hearts. You and I must live with the sense of the heat of those eyes upon our lives day in and day out. We should feel the warmth of those eyes gazing upon us, scaling us day in and day out. Why is that important? Because nothing, again, can be done apart from his knowledge. See, this will, this will dismantle any attempt to try to be one thing in the light and be another thing in the dark. Dim the light as much as you want. His eyes are like a fire and they will shine in any place that is attempted to be buried. He will expose it. He will see it. He will record it. And in his wisdom, sometimes he will let other people know about it as well. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Stare at those eyes long enough until you realize that they are eyes not just of judgment but of love. And that they purify, that they cleanse, that they make us refined if we're willing to let them refine us. In verse 15 it says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So when he sees the glow in Jesus' eyes, he realizes that there's another glow, but it's coming from his feet. And when he sees his feet, he sees a material. He sees him shining like bronze, speaking of durability and stability and mighty strength. But more importantly, it's speaking about purity again. Why? Because they're refined in a furnace. There is a glow of holiness from those feet. And that says something because if Jesus is standing in the midst of his churches with such type of feet, then it demands that where he walks be as pure as he is. You say, how can you say that? Because you go back to the church of Thyatira, look at Revelation 2.18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, not just that. And it says here, and whose feet are like a burnished bronze. So his feet are pure. His feet are holy. And what he's saying is, if I'm going to walk in the midst of your church, I want it to be holy. I want it to be sacred. I want it to be sanctified. That is true of the church at large. That is true for you and me. That if we want Jesus' feet to walk towards us, if we want to walk with him, then we got to make sure that where we're walking is where he would want to walk. And how we're walking is the way that he wants us to walk. 
if we want him to take our hand and to know the fellowship and the nearness of who he is, realize the purity of his steps. Realize where he goes and where he wants to go will follow suit with the nature of who he is. This should cause us to pray, Lord, if there's anything in my life will not allow you to walk nearer to me, then burn it out of my life. Remove it from my life. Expel it from my life so that I can know your steps, so that I can walk with you in the cool of the day, so I can have that kind of a closeness. And if it demands purity, then so be it. I want you more than anything else. Look at this now. After he sees his feet, it goes from the visual to the audible. It goes from what he sees to what he hears. And what does he hear? It says, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. I'll never forget the time that as a family, we went to a specific location in Mexico. And, and this resort that we went as a family, as a just a retreat together, was in a specific um, beach but this beach, unfortunately for us as kids, we love to swim in the ocean, did not allow or permit people to swim in the ocean. And when you went to the beach, you would see why. It wasn't because it was polluted. It wasn't because there was necessarily sharks, though there were sharks. It was the, the dangers of the water. I mean, you looked at that water from the beach and it was almost black. It was so dark. There was nothing appealing about it. It wasn't like these clear waters that you see in these commercials. It was, it was dark, it was heavy, and it was powerful. In fact, at night, when we were, you know, we were steps away from it. We, we, were, uh, we still had like a five-minute journey walk to, to get to the beach. But even when we were sleeping in our hotel rooms, at night especially, the waves of that ocean were so loud that it felt like a train was driving by the resort. It, it was crashing on the shore, but it was almost at a speed and in a way that you felt the sound in your chest. Some of you have been to Niagara Falls where you stand by the water with the rail and you see the waters coming, crashing down, almost exploding upon rocks. And what John points out here concerning the voice of Jesus Christ is the volume that it had. It was booming. It was resounding. It was breathtaking, his voice. And volume denotes authority. For somebody to speak with that kind of a volume says something about who he is and what he's demanding and the power of his word. And this is the voice of Christ. Realize that the voice of Christ is the very thing that spoke things into existence. It was the voice of Christ that says, Mountains, you come up this high, no higher. Water, you stop right here at this shore. Birds, you stay in the air. Fish, you're going to be in the sea. It's the voice of Christ that when he came into the world, stepped into a scene where people were mourning the death of a loved one. And he said with clarity, authority, and precision, Lazarus, come out. As it is commonly said, if Jesus had not said Lazarus and just said, come out, every person in that cemetery would have stepped out. But he said, Lazarus, come out. It is the voice of Christ that can listen to this very carefully, look at what's happening in the world right now, and he can specifically say to the coronavirus, enough. You're done. My purposes are complete. 
Go back to where you came from. And every single microorganism would obey that voice. And it is the voice of Christ. Are you going to be encouraged by this? I hope so. That will call every single one of us home with one shout. Do you realize that? That in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, it tells us that the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a cry of a command, with a cry of a command, he will call every single redeemed body, because our spirits will be with him, but every single body to come out of their grave, whether it was in the depths of the ocean, whether it was decomposed, whether it finds itself in some unknown area that could not have a proper burial, wherever every body that was redeemed and dedicated to Christ will hear that voice and in one moment will be gathered up and be glorified and be in the presence of Christ found in the air. One shout. That is the voice that John heard. And it was powerful. And this is the one that we serve. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And then he, from hearing something, begins to highlight something in his right hand. And it says, in his right hand, in Jesus' right hand, he held seven stars. He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Then again, that speaks about an imagery of the power of his word. You read later on in Revelation that with his own word, you know what he's going to do with his word? He's going to strike the nations. He doesn't need a trillion dollar army. He doesn't need all these weapons of mass destruction. He doesn't need strategy. He doesn't need to try to confuse his enemy. All he will need to do is say the word and everything will crumble. In fact, you read in 2 Thessalonians that the Antichrist will be destroyed, it says, by the breath of his mouth. Think about how powerful that is. Here's the Antichrist wreaking havoc, destroying the world, deceiving the world, and Jesus Christ will step on the scene. You know what he's going to do? And like a little gnat, he will be over with. But then he looks at his right hand. This is what we're focusing on at this point. And he held seven stars. And we go, seven stars, what does that mean? Let's go back to verse 20 and see what he says. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus says, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's much debate about what that means. Some say that these angels of the churches is just a way of saying the ministers or the senior pastors or the leaders of every church because the meaning of angels in the original is actually messenger. Some say, no, that can't be because the word angel is never used to describe a human vessel or a minister or a messenger for God. And so some would say these are actually ministering angels that have been assigned to every single local church. Whatever point you hold to, what's important to understand is that they are in his right hand. He's the one that is in control. He's the one that directs. He's the one that has authority and power over them, whether they're pastors or angels. What's important to understand is the description of them. They are stars. You know why that's important? At least for one reason. Because it stands in contrast to who he is. Why? Because they are seven stars. But then you come back and look at how that verse in verse 16 finishes. And his face, Jesus' face, was like the sun shining in full strength. See, the face of Christ was shining in full strength. And I can guarantee you this, 
that the face of Christ outshines all the stars. Whether those stars are angels, supernatural creatures, or whether those stars are human vessels used by God to be under shepherds to the church. What's more important is to understand that Jesus Christ is more glorious, more brilliant, more awesome, more attractive, more beautiful, more to be sought after, more to be gazed at, more to be praised, more to be adored than anything, including your favorite pastor, including your favorite speaker, including all these different things that you might be mesmerized by. His face outshines them all. His holiness outshines them all. His beauty outshines them all. It is overwhelming and it is our job to look at his face and not focus on lesser lights. Jesus Christ in full strength. You think about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus gave a taste of what his glorified state would look like and the disciples were, were getting it. But here it says in full strength without reservation, without holding back. How do you think John responded to such a sight? Well, we find out in verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I patted him on the back and I said, thanks for saving me, buddy. When I saw him, I said, yo, homie, you're so awesome. Thanks for giving me stuff during my lifetime. No, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Again, maybe we don't have this understanding of who Jesus Christ is today. And I am certain, listen, even Christians are going to be in the shock of their life when they see Jesus Christ face to face. You probably know some people who profess Christ that are so casual about Jesus. Even the way they come into church, they're so casual. It's just like any other meeting. It's just like any other time. And they don't realize who they're singing to. They don't realize who they're hearing from. They're just casual. It's just the word of God. And they can do whatever they want. Listen, those same people, if they're truly saved, and it's even worse if they're not. Even professing believers, when we see this Jesus... It will feel like our bones turn into jello in the sight of who he is. You say, don't say that. I am saying that because nobody, including myself, was closer to Jesus than this man. And yet this man who knew Jesus in his earthly ministry saw him and it literally took his breath away. I'm telling you, we are going to be in the shock of our life. I am certain that many, many will not even be able to recognize him when he comes. I'm sure many will say, this is the one that we've been singing to Sunday in and Sunday out. This is the one that I've been studying about. This is the one that I've been hearing about as I'm hearing about him today. Yes, in my poor attempt to try to describe him, you and I will see him and we will be spellbound at his majesty. But here's the comforting thing. As terrifying as it is in light of his holiness and his brilliance, It says, but he laid his right hand on me, John says. Oh, so though he saw him in a different state, that touch was familiar. The same touch that he knew during the earthly ministry where he walked in the flesh is the same touch that he now senses. And Jesus says, fear not. 
I am the first and the last. And here's the last point in our description of Jesus. And the living one. And the living one. This, this Jesus that you're hearing about this morning in the comfort of your home is alive. Alive now. Alive in this moment. Alive and well. Alive and gloriously triumphant. Alive and though being ignored by millions in this world is being worshipped by every single breathing thing in heaven. He is alive. And this Jesus who is alive will make himself known one day for every eye to see and behold. He will. He will come and we will know more of his life than any other time. But here's my request, reading the book of John in my own meditation, or rather the book of Revelation. It's saying, Lord, I want to know you as the living one as much as I can before I see you face to face. If you can make yourself known to me because you are alive then make yourself known to me because I want to know your fellowship. See, we get this description and we go, that's amazing for John. It's an amazing experience. But the same John that wrote this is the same John that wrote another book. So turn there in 1 John, just a few pages back, and see what John says to churches and ultimately to us today. What do you say in 1 John verse 3? He says, that which we have seen, John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So he says, we've seen him, we've heard him early on. He says, we've actually touched him, talking about Jesus. What's the purpose of his writing in this book? He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, that by hearing this, you would understand this truth and that we would have fellowship. See, fellowship is having a commonality with another person. That you may have fellowship with us, And indeed, now look what he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm writing these truths to you so that you would be invited into fellowship, not just with the body of Christ, but with Christ himself. See, I look at this resurrected, glorious Christ and I say, "Not that's a wonderful description. I say, Lord, let me know your touch. I say, Lord... Let me see you the way you want me to see you. I say, Lord, let me know you. Let me know your voice. Let me know your presence. Let me know your holiness. Let me know your your fear nots. Let me know the truths of who you are. You're the living one. You're the first and the last. Lord, I want to know you. If you're alive, then I will seek you and I will trust that you will make yourself known. See, it baffles me to think that so many people believe that Jesus Christ is alive, but they're living as though he's not. I don't understand that. How can we look at a verse like this and say he is the living one and not live as though he's alive? Is there anything in you that looks at a verse like this and says, if he is alive, I'm going to do what I can in my life to know him as much as I can. And take advantage of the fact that you're stuck in one place to seek that. John receives it. And this is what he receives it for. Is because he wants to relay this message to the churches in his day and for the churches of all time. He wants to let the churches know that he is the way he's described and that he is alive. Why? Because he says earlier that he is a brother in what? And partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. Because the church needs to rely on these truths 
needs to look to Jesus, needs to understand who he is in times of suffering especially. This would have been extremely comfortable for the churches that he's about to write to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. By the way, it's comforting, but there's a purpose behind him exposing himself this way, Jesus, for two main purposes. One, so the churches wouldn't fear. The churches wouldn't be afraid of the persecution that they would experience, especially Smyrna. Look at Smyrna in Revelation 2. And look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. Didn't we, write, didn't we just read that? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, the living one. Why is he saying that? Well, look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He wants to comfort them with the fact that this body is temporal, sickness is temporal, persecution is temporal, pain is temporal, but he is alive. He gets the final word. We are going to him. So there's an element of comfort by this truth as awesome as it is. But that's not the only point. In fact, that's not the main point. As you're sitting there this morning, ask yourself this question. What is, his, what is Jesus's message to the end time church? Is it everything is going to be okay? That's not his main message. Is it all is well? That's not his main message. You know what Jesus' main message is to the church in the end times? Repent. That's his word. You read Revelations 2 and 3 and you realize that that is the dominant theme. That when he reveals himself this way, he takes bits of every part of who he is and he shares it with different churches and he's calling the church to repent. Not the world. Not the world. He's calling the church to get right, to examine themselves. For what purpose? Because he's coming soon, so we want to be ready to meet him. He's looking at the church and he says, time to clean up your act. Time to look at yourself and see if you are truly walking with me. You know what's disappointing, if there's any disappointment in this whole thing, with this whole coronavirus thing, is that it reveals what I term crisis Christians. Supposed believers that take their faith seriously only in the midst of crisis. And what I'm afraid of, somebody asked this question last week. What are you worried about concerning the church during this time? Here's what I'm afraid of, that we will mimic the Israelites in the book of Judges. That when there was turmoil and when there was unfortunate circumstances, God sent a deliverer, God brought relief, and there was temporary devotion only for them to cycle back into their apostasy again. You know what I'm afraid of? That we're talking about how serious we're going to be and how we're not going to take things for granted, only for one month in to come into the relief of this whole thing, life to come back to normal, and lukewarmness will permeate the church in the West again. That's what I'm afraid of. But Jesus' message to the end time church is repent. I saw a post from somebody that I don't know personally, but they were essentially rebuking people like me, I guess, saying in some words like this, how can people be speaking about repentance in a time such like this and using words such as get rid of that garbage theology. We don't want it in this day. Oh, really? So Jesus had garbage theology. So Jesus must have been foolish and must have been acting, unfortunately, unwise to look at the church in the end times, to look at the church that we're facing persecution and threats to say repent. Is repentance a bad thing? No, it's an opportunity to be reconciled in fellowship with Christ. 
I'm glad that there is a message of repentance. Because if there's no repentance, there's no hope. If there's no repentance, then we're stuck where we're at. If there's no repentance, then there's no second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth chance. I love the message of repentance. And we should too. Last warning before we close this message. Go to Revelation chapter 19. And you're going to see something quite astounding concerning the person of John. Look at Revelation 19 with me. And look at verse 10. Look what John does after he receives a specific revelation from an angel, a creature, supernatural spirit being, gives him insight concerning something. And look at the response of John. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This is John. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John, this same John, falls at the feet of an angel and begins to worship him. And the angel says, what are you doing? Now listen, this is where it gets scary. Go to Revelation chapter 22. And look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Hold on. John fell at the feet of an angel not once, twice. Now, let's take a backtrack and realize who John is. John is the one who beheld Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. He was one of the only male disciples who was there at the scene. John laid his head on his bosom and heard that wonderful heartbeat of the God-man. John saw miracles. John heard the teachings of Christ from his very lips. John saw his resurrected body. John saw his glorified state as described in Revelation chapter 1. And this John, please pay attention to this point. This John, who was exposed to so much, who experienced so much, was tempted to worship something else other than God. Not once, but twice. Do you comprehend the seriousness of this. A man with such a resume like his was still prone to bow down at the feet of something or someone else. Now, this is the point that I'm trying to make. If John, with the experiences that he had and the relationship and the exposure that he had received of Christ, if John had so much in his history with Christ, was still tempted to make an idol What makes you think you and I will not be prone to make idols in our lives? What makes you think that you and I will not feel the tug and the pull and the temptation to fall down at something else's feet or someone else's feet and begin to worship them instead of God? This is a profound statement being made indirectly that with John and his exposure and his experiences, if he fell down at something else's feet other than God, you and I better believe that it's possible for us to do the same, if not more. 
So if that's the case, what should we do? Here's the solution to protecting ourselves from falling down and worshiping something else in this life. Keep Jesus ever before your eyes. Make Jesus a priority daily in your life. Make sure that you know how to sit at his feet so that you don't fall at the feet of someone else. Take this as a lesson that if John, the beloved, could not once but twice make the mistake of giving his devotion and his affection to someone else other than Christ, that it's possible for you and I to do so in a split moment. We're at the end of the book of Revelation with all the visions of destruction and the coming victory of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he still falls down to worship at the feet of an angel. You and I need to keep our hearts in check during these times. I say this in love. I say this because I care for you and I believe that it's possible to remain in a state of devotion to Christ. But let this be a learning lesson. Lord Jesus, if you do not satisfy my soul daily, then I will find something else to try to satisfy it. Lord, if you do not allow my eyes to see you in your word the way you want me to see you, my eyes will be attracted to lesser lights. Let your light shine in full brightness so that it would overwhelm me and blind me to all other things. Look to Jesus. As you are in solitude, as you are in quarantine like John was on Patmos, ask the Lord to visit your heart through his word so that you can fall at his feet and not fall at someone or something else's. That's my prayer for us as a church. That's our desire as a body. And if it hasn't been, let it be now that we can have fellowship with him because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you that you gave us a description of your son. And we thank you that he can be known and that revelation can be given to us regarding who he is. And Lord, one prayer, not for relief, not for fear, not, though that's important, but for all of those things to be dealt with in the pursuit of knowing Jesus. And so we ask right now that Jesus Christ would make himself known to every person that's watching this live stream and that there would be a fellowship known and a fellowship to be testified about during these times like we've never known before. If anybody feels dull in heart, if anybody feels comfortable, if anybody feels like there's no drive, let them realize that like John, no matter how much they've seen or known, there's still more to know. Help us realize that you are to be marveled at for all eternity and that we will never know boredom ever again. But Lord, we don't want to just wait till then. We want it now. So we pray that you would meet us in a special way and we would take advantage of this time to know you intimately. Help us to look to Jesus during these times. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you and we'll see you soon in Jesus' name.